Good evening, and welcome to the last of my four lectures this year, which is called Private Palaces, the Mansions of the Marlboroughs. It's not only the last of my uh, four uh, professors' lectures this year, it is also the Provost Lecture, because I'm currently the uh, Provost of Gresham College. You don't get two lectures tonight, you get one, but it's badged twice. Well, this evening I am uh, telling the tale of two really quite extraordinary people. A husband and wife team who brilliantly navigated through the reigns of Charles II, James II, William and Mary, to Queen Anne, and into the reign of George I. They remained in, mainly, but sometimes out of power, and amassed a vast personal fortune, leaving behind what is probably the largest private house in Britain. Blenheim Palace elicits superlatives however you look at it. At a cost of a quarter of a million pounds in today's money, it is perhaps the most expensive uh, private house ever built in the British Isles. It covers seven acres and its garden front sports a 30-ton statue of uh, the Marlborough's nemesis, Louis XIV, uh, who Marlborough spent his life fighting. The long gallery and the Great Hall are extraordinary rooms. Here's the Great Hall, uh, 67 feet high, and uh, the long gallery, uh, 183 feet long. Quite honestly, you hardly know where to stop when you start describing this remarkable house. My lectures this year have been taking a look at four great aristocratic families and their estates, and in my first lecture, we told the remarkable story of the Boleyns, a dynasty that rose in four generations from uh, the Norfolk uh, gentry to produce a Queen of England. Their rise was founded on money made in the city of London, but consolidated through a series of spectacular aristocratic marriages that brought enormous wealth and influence. The case of the Cecils, covered in my second lecture, was entirely different. Without the blood to marry into great wealth, two brilliant men, father and son, systematically invested the fruits of royal service in land. They bought, built, amassed, and they consolidated. On the strength of their many offices, reinforced by palpable royal favour, they borrowed uh, still more. Both uh, William and Robert Cecil looked to the future. They were dynasty building, creating houses and estates that have endured for 400 years. Their approach to building was different too. The Boleyns were eager to stress their ancient lineage, their aristocratic descent. Owning property for them was dynastic affirmation. They wanted their houses to look old. Any modernisation was carefully judged to bring modern comforts to a pre-existing structure. The Cecils came from a much more humble stock. The fact that their opponents and their detractors were very keen to point out. 
the family was out to establish itself, not only through architecture, but through the totality of an estate with a capital mansion at its heart. Those mansions made uh, references to the feudal obligations of a landowner, but were essentially new houses built by new men. My third family, the Scots, Dukes of Monmouth and Buccleuch, owed their fortune to the fact that James, Duke of Monmouth, was the adored, uh, illegitimate uh, son of King Charles II, who married a Scottish heiress. Quite unlike the Boleyns and the Cecils, what was important to them was their power base in London, not an estate in the country. The life of the Monmouths was urban, and the Duke's engagement in politics made their London residence into the model of a political house central to the mechanics of national power. So the Boleyns, the Cecils, the Monmouths, and now the Churchills. This is John Churchill, (coughs) the man who became the first Duke of Marlborough and commissioned Blenheim Palace. He was the son of Sir Winston Churchill, a royalist cavalry officer. He was born in 1650, the year after Charles I had been executed. And after a stint in Ireland during the Republic, he went to St Paul's School in London and then entered the household of Charles II's brother, James, Duke of York, as a page. John was extremely handsome and charming and in the licentious atmosphere of Charles II's court had an affair with Barbara Villiers. Now, Barbara Villiers was a mistress of uh, King Charles II's um, and after uh, 1670, she became the Duchess of Cleveland. The details of their affair are perhaps not surprisingly uh, not documented, but the Duchess gave uh, Churchill some £5,000, which he sensibly invested to give himself an annual income of some £600 a year, thus founding uh, the basis of his future fortune. Although his lustful antics may have uh, irritated Charles II, the Duke of York saw in Churchill not only a charming and intelligent courtier, but the making of a very capable soldier and diplomat. In the early 1670s, he was fighting uh, on the continent at the side of the Duke of Monmouth, who, of course, was the subject of my last lecture. Personal bravery and strategic good sense made him stand out among his fellow officers. In 1674, Churchill returned to London and was made a gentleman of the Duke of York's bedchamber. This put him in constant and intimate contact with the king's brother, who, we must remember, was in the absence of an heir to Charles II, the next in line to the throne. His first house was on German Street, 
It's no longer there. But you will remember from my last lecture that the whole of the quarter around St. James's Square had become a Tory enclave full of supporters of the Duke of York. And this is German Street here, running down the back of St. James's Square, and the Duke of York's, uh, the, the, um, the, the uh, Marlborough's, uh, as he was to become house, John Churchill's house, was just here. It was um, in this um, period that Churchill met one of the Duchess of York's ladies-in-waiting, the 15-year-old Sarah Jennings. Here you see her um, in later life, aged about um, 50. The path uh, for Churchill to marry Sarah was opened up by her brother's death and her inheritance of family lands worth £1,500 a year. The couple married in 1677. Sarah and John Churchill were financially secure because in addition to annuities from his investments and his army pay, John had a salary as the master of the Duke's wardrobe. Sarah had a pension of £300 a year as a former maid of honour to the Duchess, and she had the income from her estates at Sandridge, at St Albans in Hertfordshire, and Agney in Kent. They kept seven servants and a coach and horses in their house in German Street, and no doubt they cut quite a dash around the West End. In my last lecture, I explained the deep uh, political crisis uh, occasioned by the Duke of York's conversion to Catholicism and the split in Parliament between those who wanted to exclude him from the throne, the Whigs, and those who wanted to maintain the hereditary principle at all costs, the Tories. The exclusion crisis, as it was called, reached a peak with the banishment of the Duke of York from London, first to the Low Countries and then to Scotland. Between November 1679 and March 1682, James and his Duchess, Mary Beatrice, lived in Edinburgh at Holyrood with a short break in England in 1680. During this period, John Churchill was the Duke's closest advisor and companion, at his right hand at Holyrood and shuttling backwards and forwards uh, to London with messages to the court. At first, his wife Sarah wasn't with him, but in due course, she joined him in a large apartment at Holyrood House, which you see here. Now, <coughs> during the Republic, Oliver Cromwell had built a barrack block over the entrance front of Holyrood, signalling its new use as Edinburgh's headquarter for the army. In 1661, the Scottish Privy Council smartened the palace up, and in 1663, there was a suggestion that it might be remodelled. But nothing happened until 1670, when it was decided to almost completely rebuild it. What was built at Holyrood between 1671 and 1679 was no normal palace. At the time, it seemed extremely unlikely 
that Charles II would ever visit Edinburgh, let alone actually live there. But Holyrood House was a visible symbol of the restored Stuart dynasty and an expression of the status of Edinburgh as a national capital. Its rebuilding was therefore symbolically important as well as being necessary to serve the practical needs of the King's Commissioner to Parliament, various government officials and the Scottish Privy Council. The prime mover in its rebuilding was John Maitland, Earl and later Duke of Lauderdale, the brutal, boisterous, red-haired Scot who Charles appointed Secretary of State for Scotland in 1660. Lauderdale must have been responsible for suggesting to the king that Sir William Bruce be the architect. Bruce was another royalist who'd spent some of the 1650s touring Europe and studying architecture. The new palace, like the old, was ranged around a courtyard, and its entrance front, which you see here, was a brilliantly conceived blend of old and new. The North Tower, that's the one on the left of the picture, had contained the lodgings of Queen Mary of Scots, uh, and it weighed heavenly with national symbolism. Bruce uh, retained this and built a matching wing to the south, so the one on the right is the new one built by Bruce. And between the two was this much lower screen wall containing a swaggering entrance portal framed by coupled Doric columns and crowned by a cupola and a gigantic uh, coat of arms, which you can see a little bit better in this um, early drawing. And this front, which still greets visitors at the bottom of the Royal Mile, is both venerable and modern, militaristic and gracious, fashionable and romantic. It was designed to present the modern face of an ancient dynasty. The Duke of York's arrival at Holyrood coincided with the fall of Lauderdale, and for three years after 1679, Holyrood House became a fully working palace, where power and display, architecture and etiquette melded together in perhaps the way the Scottish Privy Council had originally intended. James, uh, Duke of York, and his household of more than 100 people, including uh, um, the Churchills, made a big impact on Edinburgh. And James did everything uh, possible to seem calm, reasonable, and gracious. He held drawing rooms at the palace, attended the Privy Council. He played golf. He attended uh, plays. Importantly, during those eight months that the 21-year-old Sarah Churchill spent at Holyrood, she renewed her acquaintance with the Duke's 16-year-old daughter, Princess Anna, a relationship that became fundamental to her life. <coughs> In 1682, the Duke uh, obtained uh, permission to uh, return to England, and he and the Churchills joined uh, the court at Windsor. The castle there had been spectacularly rebuilt to designs by uh, Hugh May 
and had been decorated by a series of magnificent murals by Antonio Verrio. Uh, and you see here uh, the Chapel Royal, uh, one of the most spectacular of those rooms, one of the greatest uh, Baroque interiors uh, conceived in England in the uh, um, late 17th century. And here at Windsor, the next important events in the lives of the Churchills took place. Sarah was made one of the bedchamber ladies uh, to Princess Anne, and her husband was created Lord Churchill. In their respective positions, they were closely involved in the princess's marriage to Prince George of Denmark. And when Anne's household was established, Sarah was given the post of Groom of the Stool with a salary of £400 a year. Groom of the Stool was effectively the head of the princess's household. John had now balanced his close support for the Catholic Duke of York with a key role in the household of the Protestant Princess Anne. It was time to move house. The townhouse in German Street was given up and the couple moved into an apartment in St. James's Palace and then soon after into a much larger and more uh, prestigious apartment at Whitehall Palace itself. There, on the 28th of February 1684, Sarah gave birth to a daughter, Anne, named in honour of the princess who was the child's godmother. And later that year, they acquired their first country house. Sarah had bought out her sister's share in the Jennings's estate at, Sandwich, at Sand Ridge and Holywell for £11,000. The estate included Holywell House, a Tudor mansion on the south of St Albans at the bottom of the hill below uh, the abbey. And uh, here you actually see the house, uh, Holywell House. Uh, here is St Albans Abbey. Here's the centre of town. Hill comes down here. Um, and you see the house actually is uh, on the street, Holywell uh, Street. This was one of the problems with it. It was uh, very public and exposed. But on the other hand it did have uh, magnificent gardens, which you can see um, some of on this early map. The Churchill's first step was to have the road realigned, which you see uh, here. So up here is the abbey. Here is Holywell Hill, Holywell Street. Here is uh, their house, or the, 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 the um, garden of the house. Here is the house, and here is the road, uh, which now curves around the front of the house avoiding it. Um, they then chose um, a completely unknown architectural talent as their architect. His name was John Talman. Talman uh, was later to snatch the job of completing Hampton Court from under the nose of his boss, Sir Christopher Wren. Talman became the leading country house architect of the 1680s and the 1690s, especially for the Whig landowners. But in 1686, he had neither a major patron or a major house 
to his name. <coughs> Remodelling Holywell House had a contract sum of £1,675, for which a new north-facing block of rooms would be built and the Tudor range renovated. And this um, illustration here shows, uh, at a later date, the new block, designed and built by Talman, and uh, a Gothicized uh, range, which is um, presumably part of the Tudor house. Uh, the earliest uh, illustrations of the front of the house uh, are after it had been uh, rendered. It was originally a, a, a brick. Um, the uh, mullioned and transom windows had been replaced by sashes. Um, a porch added to the front, and no doubt uh, the dormers uh, had been changed. But what we see underneath these changes is a typically uh, fashionable house of the 1670s, a styler, that is to say, uh, without columns on its front. It's restrained and it's modest, except in the tympanum here of the pediment, there is a huge military achievement uh, of arms, of drums and flags and muskets and pikes and armour and a helmet, reflecting the Duke, uh, 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 the Duke of Monmouth as he was to become, of course, um, uh, military um, uh, um, um, talents. The house, in fact, was really not uh, very dis dissimilar to the house that the Duke of Monmouth uh, built at Moor Park, which I spoke about uh, last time. It was uh, very typical of the restrained houses uh, constructed by many of Charles II's uh, courtiers. The one flourish, perhaps, is that um, pediment. And in that pediment, we begin to see some of the taste of Lord uh, Churchill, uh, a, 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 um, a flourish that was actually carved uh, by one of Charles II's uh, royal masons. Well, this house was the principal private residence of the Churchills through the 1690s, when, after the Glorious Revolution and under King William III, they were out of favour at court. During this period, more work was commissioned, not from uh, a named architect, but from a local builder. This included the construction of what was called a great new room. The eight years that Sarah and John spent living at Holywell were dominated by what were described as continual alterations and intensive work on designing the gardens. Writing to the Lord Treasurer, John Churchill said of Holywell, you could not avoid taking delight in the work of your own hands, for this garden is a really charming thing. But let me now briefly return to the politics, because they're complicated and they're important in this story. Although Churchill was one of James, Duke of York's closest advisers, a member of his household, and one of uh, the leading military commanders, his loyalty to James uh, as king was compromised by the fact that he was a Catholic. Although 
the fiercely Anglican Churchill brutally put down the Duke of Monmouth's rebelling, defeating his former commander-in-chief and his ramshackle army at the Battle of Sedgemoor, when it came to the crisis of 1687-8, he could not align himself with, with uh, James II's Catholic aspirations. Increasingly concerned about his family's future, he put his St Albans estates into trust to protect them from the potential seizure by the king. In the end, he was one of the key commanders who defected to join William III and his invading troops, bringing an end to his long-time master's uh, short reign. At first, uh, Churchill's relationship with the new joint monarchs, William and Mary, was good. He was put in charge of the army, and he was created Earl of Marlborough and Wiltshire, as well as being appointed to the Privy Council. <coughs> but there were deep tensions. The Marlboroughs, as they now were, had uh, Dutch rivals at court for both uh, favour and for military appointments. Tensions between Queen Mary and her sister, Princess Anne, grew, and the Countess of Marlborough uh, inflamed them. But it was the Earl's extremely unwise flirtations with his old friend James II that was the real problem. Exposed as corresponding with the exiled king in France, Marlborough was briefly imprisoned in the Tower of London and then excluded from court and sidelined in both politics and the army. It was in this period that Marlborough at Hollywell uh, acquired his taste for building and gardening, which we shall see came to dominate his later life. A big change to the family fortunes came with the premature death from smallpox of Queen Mary. William now saw that his sister-in-law, Princess Anne, would succeed him, and that Anne's son, the five-year-old William, Duke of Gloucester, would be England's future king. In October 1695, William offered Anne St. James's Palace as her principal residence, where she would live, and I quote, if she were a crowned head. William of Gloucester was given the Order of the Garter, a household of his own, and a private uh, residence. Sarah, Anne's closest friend, was now in a position to rehabilitate her husband. William was shrewd enough to realise that, whether he liked it or not, the Marlboroughs would be dominant at court in the next reign. And thus, jo uh, John and Sarah moved into St. James's Palace, this time into the largest and most prestigious of all the courtier lodgings. Over the following two years, Marlborough uh, gradually won, won back the trust of the king, and in June 1698, William restored him to favour, appointing him to the Privy Council, making him a cabinet minister, master of the horse, and most significantly, governor of Princess Anne's young son, the Duke of Gloucester, who was by then eight years old. 
The following month, when William left for Holland, he appointed Marlborough as one of his regents in his absence. And then in 1701 came the first of two events that would shape the rest of the Marlboroughs' lives. After the death of the childless Habsburg king of Spain, Charles II, and competition as to who would inherit the vast estates of the Habsburg Empire, England went to war against France and Spain to prevent them uniting under the French crown. This was seen to be vital to prevent Louis XIV from reversing the revolution of 1688, reinstating James II and imposing Catholicism on Britain. The War of the Spanish Succession, as it was called, which lasted between 1701 and 1714, dominated Europe and was to become the making of Marlborough. The following year came the second event to change the lives of the Earl and the Countess. For in 1702, King William III died and Anne became queen. A torrent of honours fell upon the Marlboroughs. The posts that Sarah had while Anne was princess were now made into sovereign appointments. And so she became mistress of the robes and groom of the stool. She also became keeper of the privy purse, meaning that Sarah Churchill held the three most powerful appointments at court. Sarah was also appointed the Ranger of Windsor Park, and her total salary from this clutch of appointments was £6,000 a year. Meanwhile, Anne made Marlborough a Knight of the Garter and Captain General of Her Majesty's Land Forces and Commander-in-Chief of Forces to be employed in Holland in conjunction with the troops of the Allies. A few days after that, he was made Master General of the Ordnance. The post of Commander-in-Chief alone brought him £10,000 a year, and this is not uh, even taking into account the many perks that accompanied the post. After his first season of campaigning in the Spanish War of Succession, Marlborough had won some modest victories. And on returning to London in December 1702, the Queen promoted him to the Dukedom of Marlborough and awarded him a pension of £5,000 a year for her entire lifetime. In short, in the first year of the new reign, the Duke and Duchess, as they now were, had completely cleaned up. Let's return to the architecture, because Sarah's appointment as ranger at Windsor requires some explanation. As princess, Anne had spent much time at Windsor Castle, living first in the castle and then later in a succession of large houses in the castle's shadow. Uh, at first, she lived in this very large house and garden here, looking onto the park. She then moved into this house, which was known as the garden house, which she retained even after she became a queen. Her original lodgings were in the uh, castle itself, in this location here. But this, the garden house, is where she liked 
to live while she was at Windsor. The great attraction for uh, the Queen was, uh, first of all, the hunting, but secondly, the fact that her son, the, the Duke of Gloucester, was at school here at Eton uh, College. Um, and even after uh, the poor boy died, age only 11, um, Queen liked to stay in the garden house uh, to the south of the castle walls. <coughs> Sarah uh, Churchill, therefore, required somewhere to stay near the castle. And the post of ranger came with a large lodge, uh, now uh, uh, called Cumberland Lodge, uh, in the park. Uh, it doesn't look like this anymore. This is um, uh, an 18th century uh, painting of it. Uh, the, the lodge had been built in the 1650s and it had been improved in both the reigns of Charles II and uh, William III. But what uh, the Marlboroughs uh, found there, they believed uh, required improving, and immediately they commissioned an extensive remodelling, which was to cost over £2,500, and was executed by the Royal Office of Works under Sir Christopher Wren. Uh, the work was probably actually undertaken uh, by Nicholas Hawksmore, and it was supervised uh, personally uh, by Sarah because her husband was uh, working um, abroad. Now, this view of the house, which was done in the early uh, 1750s, shows uh, in the centre here, if you ignore these two uh, side pieces, um, a house very, very typical of the 1650s with a flat uh, platform on the roof with a balustrade allowing a view over the park uh, with a, a steep roof um, and a, a series of dormers. What we don't know is what exactly uh, uh, Sarah and John Churchill added, but it is possible, and this is only speculation, that they added these two pavilions at either end, symmetrically placed, um, enlarging the house. Uh, here is uh, a plan uh, of the uh, uh, house and the estate. Here is what may have been the original house and what may have been the two added pavilions at either uh, side. Um, we do know quite a bit about Sarah's views on architecture. And this is quite unusual for um, a person in the early um, 18th century because people didn't often write down their views. But uh, a great letter writer, and uh, a, a letter writer um, through necessity because her husband was uh, frequently away, um, Sarah put her views down on paper. She believed in utility, much later uh, condemning uh, Sir John Vanbrugh's great bridge at Blenheim as ridiculous and writing to her niece that she had never been very fond of magnificent things. She was uh, to advise her grandson's tutor, uh, and I quote, as to architecture, I think it will be no use to Charles or John, no more than music, which are things proper for people that have time upon their hands and like passing it in idleness rather than in what will be profitable. Poets, painters and builders, she wrote, 
have very high flights, but they must be kept down. And she was to instruct uh, the architect Roger Morris at her house in Wimbledon, which I'll mention later, to have, and I quote, things plain and clean from a piece of wainscot to a lady's face. Her tastes were for simplicity and utility. A plan of uh, Windsor Lodge, which you see here from 1748, shows that the house was indeed relatively modest and that she had there what she described in another letter as everything convenient without trouble. So this plan shows a, a proposed addition at the end. Um, this is the central block here, which I showed you, and here are the pavilions at either end. You can see it was uh, not a very small house, but certainly um, a modest and very compact and neat one. <coughs> we now come to an important point. The Duke and Duchess lived in the largest apartment, St. James's Palace, immediately adjacent to the Queen, and they had a, a modest house and estates in St. Albans and the use of a great lodge uh, at Windsor. All these residences were Sarah's, owned or occupied either through inheritance or through the posts that she held. In the case of the rangership in uh, uh, Windsor, uh, she held the post for life. The Duke was absolutely occupied with the war, and apart from his brief period of exile from court in the early 1690s, when he'd loved uh, building his uh, uh, garden, he hardly saw his wife and was disengaged from her building projects. There was no great country house to visit and no rolling acres to manage. In my previous lectures, we saw how royal favour was critical in boosting the architectural uh, fortunes of the Berlins, the Cecils and the Monmouths. The route to architectural greatness for John Churchill was, despite appearances, slightly different. The emergence of the political parties of Whigs and Tories during the exclusion crisis and the settlement of the Glorious Revolution in 1688 decisively moved the focus of power away from court to Parliament. The Queen was important because she appointed ministers, but those ministers had to have the support of Parliament without which they would be impotent. Marlborough was a courtier, a diplomat, a soldier, but not a politician. And his political power base was his intimate friendship with the taciturn financial genius, Sidney uh, Godolphin. Godolphin was a veteran of the treasury and master of the national finances. Like uh, John Churchill, Sidney Godolphin, who had risen to power and influence in the reign of James II, had entered the orbit of Princess Anne. And at her accession, the 57-year-old politician became Lord High Treasurer and the most important politician in England. Marlborough and Godolphin were effectively the heads of a ministry that favoured war with France and a strategy of surrounding the French army on all fronts, dividing it and crushing Louis XIV. To stay in power, 
they needed to navigate the extremely complex politics of the House of Commons, dominated by the warring Whigs and Tories. The politics were uh, extremely complex, and I'm not going to go into them tonight, but to continue to fund the cripplingly expensive war that was to cost some £40 million during the eight years of their ministry, Marlborough and Godolphin needed to present the war as a heroic national struggle against the most powerful army in the world, a struggle led by a national hero, the scourge of Louis XIV, the Duke of Marlborough. After Marlborough's very first season in the field, a medal was struck commemorating Marlborough's modest successes. A large number were produced and circulated. But these medals contained an iconographical conundrum. Previous monarchs, Charles I, James II, William III, had all been their own commanders-in-chief of their armies, and medals uh, that celebrated the monarch bore their faces. Anne, as a woman, uh, was not commander-in-chief, and depicting Marlborough in any way as equal or greater than the monarch was completely impossible. This uh, problem of representation became even more complicated when, in August 1704, Marlborough led the Grand Alliance Army to victory at Blenheim a military triumph which was so shattering that Louis XIV passed a proclamation banning people from mentioning its very name. This led to a series of other spectacular wins at Ramillies, Lille, Malplaquet and Bouchain. In fact, Marlborough was never beaten at a major battle in the field and every victory became an excuse for celebration. But the first and greatest victory was Blenheim, and even before the echoes of the church bells ringing in celebration had died out, discussions were underway about how to commemorate it. One idea was for a new London square to be laid out and named after the Duke having at its centre an enormous fountain with statues of the Duke and the Queen. But it was impossible to erect a monument that seemingly put a subject on par with his monarch. The next idea was to erect a huge obelisk, <coughs> which would celebrate the battle and ascribe victory to the Queen, a drawing in the hand of Nicholas Hawksmoor, which you see here, shows uh, the idea uh, with the inscriptions to the Queen's glory. Well, neither of these things came to pass, and in the end, what was done was to grant uh, the Duke one of the oldest and most prestigious royal estates in England, the ancient palace and park of Woodstock. This place had been a, a favourite of the Tudors and used by the early Stuarts, but it had fallen out of use as a royal residence after the Restoration. The large uh, medieval house, which you see here, still stood in a stunning walled landscape. 
And uh, recent uh, research by James Lagarde has, has demonstrated that this uh, uh, was no spontaneous gift from the Queen. It was, in fact, a carefully orchestrated transfer of land masterminded by Marlborough and his political allies and expertly executed by Godolphin. After all, the man was a duke. He was the most powerful person in the kingdom, basking in royal, political, and popular adulation. And yet, he had no estate. His wife's houses were nice to have, but a man of his status needed lands and a house suitable to his stature. This, after all, was not a new concept. Henry VIII was very content for Cardinal Wolsey to have a magnificent house at Hampton Court because it reflected on the greatness of his principal servant and represented the power of the nation to foreign ambassadors. Queen Elizabeth was more than happy for Cecil to build Tibbles for precisely the same reason. And Marlborough needed to hold his head up high amongst the power brokers of Europe, and Woodstock would allow him to do this. The grant of Woodstock in April 1705, therefore, was both Marlborough capitalising on the swell of adulation flowing from the victory at Blenheim to provide for himself an estate, but also the perpetuation of the heroic myth that was being spun around him to emphasise the merits of the war and its chief protagonist. Crucially, this could not be a personal gift. That would have alienated the very support in Parliament that was vital for continuing the war. But it was what uh, Marlborough described uh, as a royal and national monument. At this stage, all that was public was the gift of the estate. But it seems that even before this was made, Marlborough was in conversation with Sir John Vanbrugh, Wren's deputy at the Office of Works. We don't have time to cover Vanbrugh's uh, career tonight, but his name is sufficiently well known to state that he moved from being a merchant and a soldier to being a playwright and a herald and then an architect. His lucky break came with a commission to design for Lord Carlisle Castle Howard uh, in Yorkshire in 1699, surely the most spectacular architectural debut, debut um, in English history. It was perhaps through uh, Vanbrugh's membership of the exclusive Kit Kat Club, where um, he um, and Car Carlisle rubbed shoulders, that Vanbrugh got the commission to design Blenheim Palace from Marlborough, who was uh, another member. As this was to be a public building, it was first assumed it would be built by the Royal Office of Works, and Christopher Wren was sent to Woodstock and estimated that a new house there would cost £100,000. But Wren was not to be the architect. Vanbrugh had been chosen, uh, almost certainly on the strength of his design for Castle Howard. And Godolphin uh, told Vanbrugh that uh, Wren's £100,000 would be his budget. A model was made and was shown to the Queen. It was approved, and it was set up at Kensington Palace. 
Uh, soon, a delegation of Marlborough's friends, led by Lord Carlisle, were visiting the newly dug foundations. A few days later, Godolphin himself inspected the work with the Duchess as his guide. And this is um, an early, uh, rather crude drawing of the uh, emerging palace at Blenheim and the gardens, which the Duke was extremely keen on. And you can see the walls around the inner park and the outer park, um, the uh, incredible avenues planted. And here are some uh, visitors coming to inspect the works underway. Not long after the house had started, and as the cost started to mount up, Godolphin was writing to the Duchess, who was increasingly concerned about the megalomaniac nature of the project, stating that Marlborough thought the magnificence of the house was not only proper, but necessary, and it should be of a suitable scale appropriate to a memorial set up for the public upon so remarkable occasion. You see, it was Marlborough who justified the house as a public monument rather than a private vanity project. But his victory at the Battle of Ramillies in 1706, which triggered the collapse of the French war effort in the former Spanish Netherlands, led to formal recognition in the House of Commons that not only the estate, but the vast mansion built in it were to be a gift of the Queen. Secure now in the knowledge that parliamentary cash was behind the project, Vanborough was ordered to improve the design. Here is uh, <coughs> the original design with its um, Tuscan order, statues on the parapet, a couple of military uh, trophies on the top, and here is what happened uh, to the design immediately after Parliament uh, granted him money. You see that um, the statues are gone, many more um, military trophies, the uh, side pavilions uh, increased, and the order is now not Tuscan, but Corinthian. The grant of cash after the Battle of uh, Ramillies began a pattern of victory and reward that took place during his successful campaigns. After each success, he was able to claim more money for Blenheim, peaking um, at a sum of £40,000 granted to him by Parliament after the last great victory at Malplaquet. His victories were great achievements and the payments were great rewards. Each success was celebrated in London and Marlborough became a popular hero, celebrated in everything from print to pottery. With rock-solid royal support and popular adulation, the Duke and his project were both on secure foundations. Marlborough, being in the field, was of course not around to supervise the house, you see another one of the drawings here. This is the entrance front, um, which um, uh, is on the other side here. This is the um, garden front you see in this uh, picture. Um, and because uh, he was uh, away, he was forced to uh, use the Duchess 
to uh, manage the works. And uh, he wrote from his tent to her that he wanted the work to be advanced as quickly as possible because he wanted to live in it before he died. Uh, Sarah was a brilliant businesswoman. She had managed uh, the Queen's privy purse with discipline and project management came naturally to her. And she ruled the workman and the architect with a rod of steel. A stream of letters posted almost every day kept the great general in touch with developments on site. And added to his wife's reports came missives, plans and budgets from Vanborough and progress reports from Godolphin. In 1706, Marlborough wrote from his camp, and I quote, For myself, I could have agreed with you in wishing the house had been lesser, so that it might be sooner finished. But as it will be a monument of the Queen's favour and approbation of my services to posterity, I can't disapprove of the model. But just how much did this extraordinary house represent the Duke's taste? Well, you know, he had seen this extraordinary uh, frontispiece designed by Bruce at um, uh, Holyrood House. Um, He had built this uh, uh, um, uh, achievement um, at at Holywell. And uh, what we see, I think, at, um, uh, at, at Blenheim very much came out of the uh, language of these uh, two uh, triumphal houses and also, I think, the language of um, uh, Windsor Castle. Now, just as the Marlboroughs rose to the highest favour through the relationship between Anne and Sarah, so they fell. Sarah, witty, intelligent, vivacious, ambitious, started to tire of the Queen's cloying uh, affection And as Sarah unwisely turned against her mistress, so the Queen realised that she could do without her. From 1708, the relationship began to crumble. And one of the very last signs of favour, perhaps even an attempt at revitalising the relationship, uh, Anne gave Sarah a townhouse. Um, Now, the house she gave her uh, was built on land next door to St. James's Palace. So here is St. James's Palace, um, and here is what became Marlborough House, built on a portion of the uh, former um, uh, royal uh, friary built by um, James II. What is extraordinary about this house is that it is a pendant to another house built on the west side of St. James's Palace, that had been constructed by Lord Godolphin. And so, in a way, Godolphin House and Marlborough House, framing the royal palace, represented in brick and stone the ministry that Godolphin and uh, Marlborough um, ran for the Queen. The taste in which Marlborough House, and this is what it looks like now, was built, was very much the Duchess's and not the Duke's. Uh, The house now has got this uh, uh, rather ugly extra story on it. Originally, this is what it looked like. And um, inside, there was uh, an extraordinary uh, staircase painted with um, a mural showing the the victories of the the Duke um, in his um, campaigns. So at this period when Marlborough House is built, the relationship with the Queen is beginning to crumble. 
And in an immensely uh, revealing letter written in this period, uh, Vanbrugh explains exactly how uh, Marlborough and Godolphin kept the money flowing to build Blenheim. And they did it essentially by portraying the construction of Blenheim as a national monument. And this is the letter uh, which, he, which, which he wrote. It says this. How well giving Blenheim that turn of a public monument had worked, even with those who were likely to make the greatest exception to it. I resolved to spare no pains in cultivating that notion in general, and have found so good success in it that I do not remember to have talked to any one body about it that has not owned the Queen was right in what she had directed, and that her honour was at stake to see it completed. So cynically, both the Duke and his architect continued to play the national monument card at the point when it seemed that Marlborough's um, uh, favour was uh, fading. Well, in the reign of um, George I, uh, Marlborough um, was uh, rehabilitated, um, and the Duke and the Duchess in August 1619 were able actually to move into Blenheim. It wasn't finished, but it was livable in. But the Duke only enjoyed his house for three years, dying in 1722. There was a vast uh, state uh, funeral, and the Duchess was left Marlborough House uh, and Blenheim, and an income of £20,000 a year. Uh, with this money, she started um, a new house of her own. There she is. This is the uh, house that uh, she began in Wimbledon, uh, designed by Roger Morris. Again, you can see her very plain taste, quite different from the taste of uh, the Duke. Uh, she bought many other properties uh, with her income, and when she died, she left 27 landed estates in 12 counties, with a capital value of £4 million, an annual rent roll of £17,000, £250,000 in the bank, and £12,500 in um, annuities. Well, Sarah died um, at Marlborough House, uh, an old lady, in 1744. Well, it's now time to um, conclude my uh, series of lectures, and of course, there are, there are many things I could say, but I'd like to end on, uh, on just two points. The first is that in uh, my first three lectures, the Berlins, uh, the Cecils, and the Monmouths all took their largesse directly from the hands of the monarch. When we come to consider the case uh, of the Marlboroughs, uh, Parliament had interposed itself. And the management of Parliament in the extraction of funds to fund Blenheim is a feature that uh, the Berlins, the Cecils, and the Monmouths did not have to contend with. My second uh, uh, and final point is perhaps a slightly surprising ending. I made my point in the first lecture that it was to uh, the women that the Berlin Berlins owed their wealth. Their characters are, I'm afraid, anonymous today, but we shouldn't doubt their formidable influence in the family. The Cecils were also uh, blessed with remarkable women, one heiress, but crucially 
uh, Mildred, William Cecil's second wife, who was one of the most brilliant women of her age, and who played a crucial role in partnership with uh, William in the education of their son, Robert. Once again, uh, in the story of the Monmouths, although the marriage with the Duke was perhaps not a success in conventional terms, Anne's income and her tastes were crucial to their lives. With the Duke away from home, undertaking his military and his other duties, Anne supervised much of the building work at Monmouth House and at Moor Park. Her subsequent activities at Dalkeith certainly show her in control of the design and furnishing of the house. And tonight, these uh, amazing women are joined by Sarah Churchill, who was without doubt the agency through which her husband gained and maintained power, despite his own uh, considerable talents. Um, and here are um, th the three ladies. Unfortunately, we don't have um, any pictures of the, the Berlins. So when we ask who were the real builders of these vast estates and their palatial residences, the answer has to be the women. Their husbands were away, working, fighting, plotting, sometimes playing, and the domestic economy of these huge enterprises and their building and maintenance was organised by their wives. And of course, crucially, it was their money which paid for much of what was achieved. So this may be an unexpected conclusion to my series tonight, but it's an important one, and one that I hope uh, will help us look at these families, their estates, and their houses in a slightly different way. Thank you. Simon, thank you very much for a, just a really interesting lecture and a wonderful series. Um, we do have a few questions from the online audience. Um, and the first one is, if Blenheim was considered a public monument, if it was justified in that way, how much public access was granted to the, to the grounds or the house? Well, during the um, 17th and 18th century, and even into the 19th century, there was a surprising amount of access to, um, to, to all country states. People um, did come um, on, on country house tours, rather like going out visiting a, a clutch of National Trust houses on your holiday. And so people, people did get out there, but of course, Woodstock was really quite a long way away from London. Um, and um, the political classes, if they wanted to go there, did have to make a special trip, and it was several days to get there. But uh, unquestionably, that did happen, and uh, I mentioned this uh, uh, visit very um, early on in the history of the house, um, a, a gang of um, the Duke's friends turning up, and that remained the case, uh, people driving out to, to, to stare and wonder at this extraordinary uh, building. Um how common were arms on buildings owned by people from the military or high society people? I think that refers to that pediment. That yes. In the, yeah. Um, not very, I think, is the answer. Coats of arms, yes, and sometimes the coats of arms would in, include um, uh, military objects. But uh, these um, really heroic carvings were generally kept for, for royal buildings, actually, um, several of Charles, the, the, um, Charles II's buildings had such uh, achievements of arms on them. 
But I think that uh, it, it was quite unusual, in fact, very unusual, that Blenheim should be so encrusted um, in, these, in these trophies. Um, and um, I think it is a point that, that does stand out. So that's a, a good point to raise. And just one last question, if we may. Um, could, you, could you outline the essential differences between the Tuscan and the Corinthian columns at Blenheim? Hmm. Maybe we can bring the slide back. Yes, well, I can whiz back, I think, to get to that. Um, so, okay. So, um, of the various orders of architecture, um, the most simple were the Doric and the Tuscan orders. And so this is a, um, a, a very, very plain order here um, with a very um, plain top to the column, a very plain uh, bottom to the column, and no sort of uh, adornment on the entablature. What happens here is that uh, you have um, a, a Corinthian capital, which has got lots of acanthus leaves and various other foliage. And you also have the um, entablature, of this, this bit above, um, which is enriched with various um, uh, um, extra carvings on it. So it's more expensive, it's grander, um, and it has uh, arguably a, a bigger um, impact on the eye. Well, thank you again, Simon, for your lecture this evening and for your generosity in addressing the questions. And thank you to our audience for, for your attention and participation this evening. Please do join us on Thursday, this Thursday at 6 p.m., for the final lecture of Gresham's academic year, which is the annual Gray's Inn reading. And this lecture on complexity and the law will be presented by the Right Honorable Lord Justice Haddon Cave. Good evening. <laughs>